What's up, everyone? Welcome back to episode two of the Shift Gear podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Anil. Joining me today is Karen. Karen, you want to say a quick hello? Hey, what's going on, everybody? Uh, excited to launch our second episode here. Yeah, man. Uh, like coming out of the first one, and like I don't know if I mentioned this in the fir- first episode, but I've done podcasting before. I've done a couple little gigs here and there, and uh, none of it was ever kind of received as warmly and as as strongly as this one kind of was uh looking back on it i think since speak on behalf of both of us like thank you for all your feedback thank you for all your support coming back this week uh we got a doozy for you here today um yeah it's 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 been pretty good so far how was your week there karen i know you skipped out on peoria do you have a lot of fomo uh to be honest yes seeing everybody play chen pao and doing so well uh but i was kind of living secondhand through grant watching his run but uh, I didn't miss the 10-hour drive. I had a, a great Thanksgiving, Canadian Thanksgiving with my family. So uh, bittersweet, but I was okay taking a nice little chill weekend. Yeah, dude, you need that sometimes. That uh, I'll speak on behalf of my car. That drive was absolutely brutal. Um, it goes by when you have friends and whatever and you're talking and all that stuff. But I think it took us like 12 plus hours both ways. And it's like, I don't know, man. Is that worth it for... <laughs> for regionals i don't know it's a it's a whole other debate the answer is probably no and i don't think i'll uh, be doing that same one last year yeah my rule is if it's more than like a seven hour drive like that's a flight or i'm not going unless i like for whatever reason like desperately need my invite yeah and the the flights were kind of crazy this weekend for for no reason it was like 600 bucks round trip for us for our flight to chicago yeah and then you still have to rent the car to drive so yeah, it just didn't make sense for me. Uh, I'll be in Toronto, and then I have some more tournaments planned after that. Yes, sir. It was uh, it was a good decision you made. Um, okay, so yeah, like I was gonna say, like how was your week? And then I remembered that LAIC reg happened, and that my entire morning was consumed by that. So, what a dogfight that was. Yeah, I was. Uh, I actually got really lucky. I I didn't realize registration was nine a.m. I kind of forgot, and I woke up and I just go on Twitter, and everyone was freaking out, and then. Uh, it was glitching for everybody. Then I just spent like 10 minutes just hitting that refresh button. And I was one of the lucky people who got through. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I definitely high rolled that one, but I think you got it as well. So uh, all's good for us. Yeah, bro. That was insane. I was like sitting there on like two devices, just like clicking refresh, 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 like every two seconds for about an hour, 20 minutes. And then I just saw you walk in. You're just like, yeah, I just got mine. <laughs> but, I, but I wasn't here for the first 50 minutes. <laughs> yeah. It's ridiculous. I mean, I saw a lot of people just complain about, like, RK9, like, how things get allocated. And, like, to be honest, like, uh, like I don't really think it's their fault. I think it's more so just, like, Pokemon. Like, they need to get bigger venues. Um, if I had to guess, like, Pokemon, when they, like, sign these deals, they probably lock in venues for multiple years. So they can't, it's not super easy to make them bigger. But, I mean, like, the demand has just been crazy the past couple of years that I think it's almost unacceptable for Pokemon not to have the venues. And it doesn't make any sense to me that registration's a month before the tournament, like, registration should be able to open like a month in advance uh if it's really expensive to book travel like a month in advance so i'm hoping uh if any organizers are listening uh please open your registration as early as possible yeah man like um i was i was also saying this to you like my my flight was non-refundable i booked it a while ago i'm cool either way because I'm, I'm going with my my buddy who doesn't play pokemon he just wants to go to rio so i was chill to have a vacation but you're right like it needs to open a bit earlier and the other thing is as well, like I don't, I don't think it was RK9's fault as well. Like, I don't know if you saw their all their tweets after. Did you see their tweets? 
yeah like they were kind of explaining it they were pretty transparent about the whole thing and what happened and like i get that i just don't think like the the trickle effect of like you're starting out the trickle effect but the trickle approach of letting people register as as opposed to first come first serve is the answer here just because like you have people who like at 9 a.m they gotta work man like they don't have an hour to keep clicking refresh yeah i agree uh, I think my only call out is that, like, no matter what system you pick, as long as there's not enough spots, like, people are going to miss out. So, like, it feels bad if it's trickle. It feels bad if it's first come, first serve. Either way, it feels bad. So, hopefully, eventually, we can get to the point where everyone who wants to play in a tournament can play. Uh, but, yeah, for now, it's just really, like, unsustainable and just not good for the game. Yeah, and, like, this weekend in Peoria, I know you weren't there, but they had a... You were there last year with me, so you knew what the hall looked like. It was just like the one hall there. But this year, they opened up an entire different wing as well. So they rented another hall. And that's why they were able to accommodate so many masters. There's so many like VG and Go players all around as well. Like they did a good job of like kind of getting with the times and, and realizing that the demand is going to be insane. And I think that for the next month, two months, three months, like at least until Christmas, it's going to be this kind of demand. Like you see it every season where it starts off really hot and then it kind of peters out a little bit. But it definitely feels like a lot more people are playing this game right now than than normal. Oh, 100%. Uh, and it's great to see, to be honest. Like, I just, I think the games would continue to grow, and hopefully the, the all the organizers and Pokemon themselves have the capacity to handle all the growth. Yeah, I hope it continues to grow as well, as long as I can register for everything. Then I don't care, because this is like, this is a dogfight, bro. Like, I was talking, I forget who I was tweeting at. I think it was Rahul. I was tweeting at Rahul um we both like we both have the stipend last year and we both have the guaranteed entry or whatever and then like he's like i haven't had a stipend for the last like two ic's and he's like this is the best motivation ever for me to go get a stipend and i'm like i don't know man i, I want to get points so much more after having that experience for an hour and a half oh 100 like yeah last year i had three stipends <laughs> and yeah the best part was literally like not having to be in the queue like just knowing for sure i had a spot so yeah hope that's definitely motivation to uh perform well but yeah, ideally you don't have to do that. Yeah, and I also saw like there is there's some tweets out there. I know I know Zach mentioned it for a bit, but um, like just talking about like, the, like a tiered registration system and stuff, dude. Like I, I love the idea, but it's not, it's probably gonna end up in the in the way that like people will gravitate towards the higher tier like registration anyways, even if they weren't going to. And then the lower tier registration is going to be the one that's uh, more plentiful because like people in this game have money, man. I don't think anybody, anybody who got capped here, like uh, for LAIC, I think all of them would fork up like two, three hundred dollars to be able just to play in the tournament. And I know that like you sit down at a regionals and you, and you sit down it's round one, your opponent flips over like a max rarity Charizard deck. You know, these guys have money, bro. This guy's riffling his hundred dollar Charizards. He'll pay three hundred dollars to get into an IC. I mean, there's there's definitely people who will, but like I just, I don't like that approach because like obviously like you want the game to be as accessible as possible. I know especially for uh, LAIC, like there's the cheapest registration. Like uh, the economies in Latin America are a little bit weaker than, than North America, so I think you'd be excluding some players. But like yeah, I 100% agree with you. If they ever introduce tier pricing, like there would definitely be a lot of players willing to pay more for it. Bro, that's gonna be the the latest money grab. It'll be an absolute disaster for the player base, and I hope that does not happen. Like I, I saw Shemansky tweeted earlier about um how many like how if you're a local and you're you're a Latin American local and that wherever you're from in in Latin America, um and you had this experience, there's no chance you want to play the game after this, oh, especially if you got capped out. 
Yeah, like one of our friends last year, he played the whole season, like went to EUIC, all that. He just needed like top five, top at NAIC, and he couldn't get in, and he just basically quit after that. So it definitely is a really sour taste in a lot of people's uh, mouths. So yeah, it's not good for the game at all. But uh, for now, it's it's kind of what we have to deal with. Um, but yeah, moving on. Like, why don't we talk about Peoria? So you were there this weekend. Uh, like fellow Canadian won, Raymond won with Lost Box. Uh, why don't you go over what you played and how your your day went? Oh, bro! I wish I didn't have to relive this. Um, I so this yeah this this evolves into a bit of a bigger discussion. This is why I was excited to come on today specifically. Um, so I kind of went outside my comfort zone. I've only we've only had one episode of this podcast, but I think everybody already knows how my disdain towards Lugia and how I think it's always kind of been casino. Well, not always, but more recently has been just a casino. And I played into that casino this weekend, and I thought that, you know what, like, it seems like a positive metagame for, for kind of big basic Lugia, so to speak, where with Snorlax and a and, and bunch of 280 health Lugias trying to kind of tank hits, it just felt like the right choice, and I saw it was doing well in Japan, um, this should be a lesson again to myself and everybody around me that Japanese results often do not mean much in the uh, in the modern game, it seems like we normally get like one or two champions leagues or like some sort of big tourney where we look at like look at the data and we overanalyze it a little bit and almost every single time we get punished so like (laughs) i learned my lesson here but yeah like i I didn't have a great day with lugia um it was one of those days where it just felt like an absolute low roll i thought i played the deck decently well um to my ability in that sense but uh there's a lot of draw passes a lot of pump kaboo pass like normal lot of reading the wind i read the wind so much it was insane <laughs> and like the moment you read the wind especially if you're playing against lost box you're playing against maridon you already lost the game there's a raku staring you down and I, I got donked five times this weekend um it's tough it's tough man yeah that's um, but yeah big low roll. Yeah, yeah i mean big low roll uh that seems a little bit uh skewed on the side of variance or the negative side of it but like, why don't we talk about Lugia as a whole? So going into the weekend, I definitely think Lugia was one of the most hyped decks. I think I predicted it to be the most popular deck. Uh, and day one, it was the second most popular deck. But it had a huge fall off in conversion to day two. And I think when I was looking at the standings that I have them up right now, like not a single Lugia made it into the top 16. So uh, why do you yep. think Lugia flopped, specifically colorless Lugia? I think we overanalyzed the meta a little bit. Um, in the Western world, I guess. And, and I think we overanalyzed kind of what we would see and what would do well in that sense. I don't think... Well, we knew Zard was going to be popular. I don't know if we thought it was going to be 15% popular. I think that was one of the one of the problems for Lugia, for sure. Um, 15% popular Zard and then 12% Maridon. It's a lot. Yeah, I think Maridon for sure is like a very bad matchup. I think Charizard's actually a fairly close matchup. Like I think at worst it's like forty sixty, but like in my mind the match is pretty close. But um, it is. I think maybe at least for me, it's like I don't think Lugia has any like super strong like dominate matchups besides probably like normal Lost Box. Um, yeah. So you're just playing a lot of fifty fifties across the board, which is a little prone to variance. Um, and also, uh, I don't know how many of the very top players played Lugia. Like I see some good names here who played it. I know Reagan played it. I think that might also be a contributing factor to why Lugia didn't get Yeah. There wasn't a lot around me that from what I saw. And like the the thing is as well, like you mentioned the Lost Box matchup. Even that is dodgy. Like if your opponent goes off turn one, even turn two, and gets a Raikou out and blows up your only Lugia, because like I said, you're reading the wind a lot. Um, you lose immediately. 
And like, that's difficult. That's a difficult thing to kind of overcome. And like, even when your good matchups aren't really good matchups, it's like, I don't know, feels pretty bad. But it, it does feel like when that deck does set up and you're able to collapse away your fish, you're able to collapse away your support Pokemon, that you're in a great spot to trade positively with into most decks. And Snorlax allows a lot of that. Um, but Lugia can also tank as well. And I think all of that works. And, and I think that in theory is really attractive. It's, it's like really sexy to the modern Pokemon player to be able to like trade up and, and, and trade up positively. But in actuality, it doesn't always work that way. And I think that's why you kind of saw that drop off from like you said, no Lugia's in top 16. That's why you kind of saw that drop off in day two. Like notable players obviously weren't playing it plentifully. And the other thing was that I think the deck is just kind of better in theory than it is in practice. Yeah, it's something I'll have to explore more because I was—I've been playing a lot with Lugia. Like, I still like the deck, but I think one another call it—it it has a lot less skill expression than a lot of decks in the format. Uh, so I mean, we saw the yeah. Flyers as a Lost Box mirror match. Obviously, probably the archetype it takes uh, that needs the best pilot to, to have success with it. Um, so I think maybe Lugia—it it has less margin to outplay your opponent, and it's a lot more of a fair deck than it once was. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, it'll be something to monitor. I'm sure Lugia will probably top cut Sacramento or something. Like I don't think it's dead or anything. Um, I just think it might need a little bit of innovation or another tournament or a, the meta to shift a bit more for it. Yeah, and and like you look at the meta as a whole right now, and I was having this conversation with my buddies on the car ride home. Everything, and, and I mean, we even touched on this last week. Everything seems to be kind of within that, like I don't know, eight to twelve percent range. That at every at any given tournament. There are like five or six, maybe even seven decks that can be played within that eight to twelve percent range, and yeah, in a lot of ways that is signs of a healthy meta game, and I and I do think the meta game is quite healthy right now. But there's also that factor of variance where if you look at some of these top players' runs and you look at the people who made top eight and, and top sixteen, they typically when you go on Pokestats, you'll see they were hitting all their favorable matchups in the day, and like the way this kind of not i guess it would be a hexagon meta would kind of work is that you obviously have good matchups and bad matchups normally 50 50 and and you just have to high roll you you got to hit what you want to hit and if you hit what you want to hit you're gonna have a long run and that's just kind of what the meta is right now so i think yeah like like what you said there's a lot of lack of skill expression in lugia where if you don't hit those positive 50 percent matchups which honestly i don't even know what they are at this point um you're going to have a long day and there's no way to really get out of those negative matchups. If you hit one and you're going to hit one eventually, you just need a Cinderella run to not hit them and, and get to top eight, which we just didn't see last year or last week. Yeah. hundred percent. Like I, I agree with that. I think probably one of these tournaments, someone's going to play Lugia, a good player. They're going to spike like good matchups, play good Pokemon. They'll probably maybe even win the event. Um, okay. But moving on, yeah. let's talk about the deck that did show up the most. It was Charizard. So, I think last week I said I did expect Charizard to be very popular. I didn't expect it to be 15% day one, like a 19% day two. So uh, it didn't make top eight, but it did dominate the day two metagame. So uh, what are your thoughts on Charizard and why do you think it had such a, a, a big showing this turn? Well, I mean, you touched on it last week pretty well, I think. It's uh, obviously a fan favorite. Um, I think the the way the deck kind of plays itself as well is is quite appealing, not only to like seasoned players, but also to newer players. I think you do have a little bit of room for skill expression there. Um, like like specifically when you're like arvening for rare candy and you can get a like an Entei with a Forest Stone and then turn it into a massive board just from that one Arvin. 
And I think that's kind of attractive to, to good players as well. And I know they, there were a couple good players that cooked up a, a dif- different kind of list using Pidgeot V. And I think that's cool. Um, but I think a lot of it and a lot of the popularity that you saw was probably with um, more casual players that just like Charizard. And I think the fact that it also can be a tier one deck puts that all together in their heads and, and, and makes it a 15% deck. Do I think it's going to be 15% moving forward? Probably not. But I think the hype was definitely there. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if it's 15% going forward again. I mean, like, on paper, Charizard has a, like, fairly decent matchup threat. Like, it doesn't have anything atrocious besides Chen Pao as a matchup. Uh, and it's just like we were saying, like, people like playing this deck. Like, obviously, there's skill expression, but it's fairly straightforward. Like, you just rare candy to Pidgeot, then you rare candy to Charizard. Uh, and I just think it's, like, just a fun deck as well. So, I think it'll probably hover around that 10 to 15% mana share again this weekend. Yeah, it's definitely going to be interesting to see what it does. And I think, I mean, it depends on how you view the Lost Box matchup, but I don't particularly view it as being positive for Zard. So that kind of may skew it a little bit, just with Lost Box's success and how much we saw in top eight as well. I think Zard is a fine match. I think Zard probably has a worse Kyogre matchup, but I think it's probably favorable to normal Lost Sigma, you think? Like, it's kind of hard to do 330. I think vice versa. Because Kyogre can't touch the Zard, so I think it's uh, I think it's a bit more difficult for Kyogre because of that Terra ability. I, I feel like Turbo might have a better time into it because you can just hit the Pidgeots for weakness. And but I understand that the three thirty is a bit of a difficult number to hit. I just feel like if you can take out one Zard and, or you can get Sableye on early, where you can sprinkle on Charmanders and Pidgeys, it gets pretty favorable. I mean, I was talking with Raymond and Andrew about this uh, shameless plug for my YouTube video coming out today as well, <laughs> um, and they were telling me that. Uh, the reason they think Kyogre is good into Charizard is what you can do is uh, you can just like hit the Charizard with like a Dragonite or a Zamazenta, and then you can just leave 30 on a Pidgeot EX, and you can just like use Sableye to like knock out Mew, knock out Charmanders, Pidgeys, and Echoing Horn, uh, and you just finish the game with Kyogre. So I thought it was interesting uh, how they approach it. Like, yeah, you just obviously like can't Kyogre the Charizard, but if you can just take out the Charizard EX and like knock out like one baby Pokemon, like a Charmander or something, that uh, you can set up for Kyogre. Well, I guess as well, yeah, sorry, I guess as well, you can also kind of go around it. Like, if you kill the Entei and just horn it back, you don't actually never need to hit a Charizard. Yeah, exactly. Uh, or you can just leave 80 on it and then finish the game with the Dragonite. So, that's a matchup hmm. I would need to test more, but I do think the, the matchup's probably fairly close. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, okay, let's go on to, okay, and I'm excited for this one. I'm excited to ask you this question, because I know you're going to hate it. Um, all right, Mew Grabbers, give me your take. I mean, I thought it was a really great build. Uh, I think Rowan wasn't the only player who played it, but obviously he finished the best. Uh, I just thought it was like super creative deck building. Like, I think this is what I love about Pokemon. Like, we do live in an era where I think deck building is a little like devalued, like limitless exists. Like, everyone's playing good lists. There's less innovation, but uh, him like putting the Grabbers and the Luxray was just like so smart this weekend. So, uh, I mean, obviously Mew struggles against Charizard. Uh, but he was able to like innovate and find a way like to, to fix that matchup. So if you just judge and path and then grab her to get rid of like Pidgeot, like Charizard, or whatever, like you're basically just bricking your opponent. It, it works against Chen Pao, same thing. Like you judge path, grab her, like the Bibral. Um and it obviously enjoys a good Maridon matchup. Uh, he had a good Chen Pao matchup, he had a good Lugia matchup. Uh, so I just thought it was a really smart build. Obviously this deck folds to a single spear too, but Mew was probably an all time low meta share. It, it wasn't even on the graphic this weekend, so I think exploiting the metagame uh, was just super smart, and I think uh, it was a great weekend for Mew. I don't know if it'll be able to repeat its success in Sacramento and Toronto, 
Uh, but for this tournament specifically, I thought it was it was a really genius play on the, the people who brought me into the tournament. Yeah, and and there was a lot of them. I think there was a lot more than what is shown on Limitless. Uh, there is like everywhere I looked it was Mew Grabber, and I think and like as a Mew bot myself, I I did think I did consider playing Mew for this event. I really did. But I didn't think it was in a good spot. Like I just didn't think DT Mew was in a spot where it could really excel. But Grabber is kind of like that that piece that you didn't really know you were missing, but you kind of were missing. Just the ability to even look at your opponent's hand. Forget even taking the the Pokemon out. It's huge. Like there's so many times where I'm sitting on a on a judge and I have my opponent path locked, and I'm like, do I need to play this? And I think that opens up that that pathway a lot. And and the other thing is like Mew has always kind of been a medical. And like as far as I can remember, as, as since Mew's been out, and, and since I think it was Brilliant Stars when Arceus came out, um, since that Mew has always kind of had a hard counter, whether it be Path, whether it be Roxanne. There's Mighty Anna for a bit. There's Drapion. There's Spiritomb. Like bro, like they're trying so hard to kill this card and they just can't. But I think Mew's always been a meta call, and and the tournaments historically that it's done well at almost every single time have been tournaments where you're not really looking at Mew on the radar. You're like this doesn't really matter. With the exception of recently before Spiritomb came out, when DT Mew was just kind of rolling everywhere, Mew has always done its best when people don't particularly expect it. And I think this is no different. But going, if I'm going to Sacramento, and I know we're going to talk about this in, in a second here, if I'm going into Sacramento, I'm playing one Spiritomb. This one card literally autos Mew for you. And and it's painful. Like As a Mew player, you see a Spiritomb hit the floor, and if you're a Lost Fox player, you're a Gardevoir player, you're a Tina player, whatever, you have access to Super Rods, you effectively just won the game right there. So like that one card autoing you like the deck that almost did almost won the regional is, is pretty good in my mind. Yeah, hundred percent. And just another call out, uh there was three lost sound decks in top eight and none of them played Drapion either. So uh so like even that might be like played more next week. Yeah, probably. Seems seems like well, I mean like Drapion's always kind of been on and off. Um I'm not sure how much Drapion helps a lot of the time so it is a lot of hindrance when it comes to starting it and just overall it feels like your your ev kind of goes down a little bit when you play it but i think tomb as like that low liability run retreat one prizer is a solid include for next weekend yeah and i mean tomb also has utility against lugia just showing up uh Luminion. so i wouldn't be surprised to, to see it uh, up in play next week so 100 let's move on to another deck Alright, so this is another one. I'm like probably this deck's biggest hater, but it keeps proving me wrong. We had two Rhydons in top eight. Uh just oh again making top eight, then we had JW uh Crewall in the top four. I think they played the same list. Uh yeah, they played triple path and they played uh double judge. So um it was kind of funny. I remember I was watching the stream day too, and like Chip was like uh looking at the, the meta breakdown and he's like, Oh yeah, like the most three popular decks are all bad matches from Rhydon. But it just kept doing well. So um, I think just the takeaway from this weekend is a lot of people didn't respect Path. And like Judge Path is just like a super strong combo. You combo that with a deck that's aggressive like Maridon, which is going to set up every game. Uh, and it's kind of a recipe for success. So I think on paper, Maridon's matchups aren't great. And I do think Maridon struggles against really good players who know how to, how to play against it. But I mean, the deck is just like powerful. Judge Path is always going to give you a chance. And if you're setting up your, and your opponent's not, you're always going to game so i can see how yeah. radon is doing well i'm still not a big fan like I'll, you'll never catch me playing this deck but obviously this is a good deck and it's here to stay same bro like and, and like i can i mean i can speak to this as i was around the infected radon illness all weekend 
Um, my boy Shashi, shout out to him. I don't know if he listened 23 minutes into our podcast, but we'll see. Um, he was the guy who started 801 with Maridon, and he was just cruising day one, and he was destroying everything. Because Maridon's just like, Maridon's that deck, bro. Maridon's that deck that you love to hate because they're just setting up fast. It doesn't really feel like they ever encounter any difficulties. Just like, here you go, 220 to your face. Just deal with it. Um, but he fell off day two. And, and I don't think that's as much of a reflection on him as it is on his deck choice. And, and obviously, it's a great deck choice. Um, but as you said, I think Maridon struggles against better players. I think it struggles into a more controlled field. And by controlled, I mean like a more of a one prizer field where, where players are kind of comfortable losing the first couple prizes. Where Maridon excels, and, and I wish I touched on this earlier with Lugia, is into decks like Lugia where you're just taking two prizers and it's a lot of i don't want to say bots but you have like a lot of the uh <laughs> you have a lot of the day oneers who are playing like lugia or playing like stuff that they don't really understand too well but they just play it to play it because they're there kind of thing and i think lugia is definitely one of those decks zard is one of those decks where just judge path can win you a game or just blowing up a lugia turn two can win you the game and i think that's where Maridon gets its whole merit and you see it doing well locally at least for us in the toronto area it does well locally almost perennially every weekend and like now we're seeing it on a bigger stage um the one exception to this i think is jesse parker who has done well twice at back-to-back regionals which is honestly incredibly impressive so it, it goes to show that there is some variance like there is, there is some skill expression as well that goes into the deck and, and he's been able to prove that he's good with the deck but I think overall, just like with Lugia, you don't have as much say as to what's happening around you. You're more just like, I'm going to blow things up and I hope you can't respond. Yeah, like obviously, like it's never a fluke when someone makes back-to-back top 10s for Gaming. Like that's obviously, he's an extremely skilled player. Um, he's probably the best pilot in this deck, so it's not super surprising to see his name here again when he's next in top 8. Yeah, so, I concur. Uh, yeah, moving on, let's talk about Gardevoir a bit. So I think Gardevoir had an okay show, and we had Brent uh, from Australia. Uh, making top eight, um, but I think Gardevoir is fairly like underplayed again. Uh, it had a good conversion to day two, had a fourteen percent meta share. Um, where do you think Gardevoir kind of stands in this meta, and do you think it's a good play going forward? Yeah, I mean, with the amount of turbo around, I'm not too sure where it stands, and I don't really love the idea of playing Gardevoir into like a, a meta full of turbo. But I think yeah, like it was. It's not that bad, but it's definitely not positive. I know most Gardevoir players I talk to really do not enjoy that matchup. Um, well, I mean, more so than that even. Forget that. I, th- I just think, like I said last week, like into BO3, man, it's so tough. You have to like either really know what you're doing with the deck or really know what you're doing with the clock, most likely both. And it's just difficult. Like you see like the best player in the world toward like playing this deck. And, and I know a lot of the top players from the States as well were on Gardevoir last weekend. And a lot of them did convert, and there was a lot of conversions, but you didn't see it have a huge run. And I think that's just because there's always going to be that that opportunity for a very like inconvenient tie, where you need to win to get into top eight contention, you need to win to get wherever you need to go, and you're tying just because your deck is a little slower. You take some time to set up, you're absorbing a lot of pressure, and you have no way to finish series out like fast when you're under pressure. And I think that alone and, and that aspect of the deck alone obviously makes it better into BO1. And I, I, I do think that Gardevoir is a potential at any time to win a regional. Because I think had the if this format is BO1 everywhere, I think Gardevoir is the best deck, if not one of the best decks. Um, 
it's just strong. It has potential to, to kind of skill express. It has a lot of potential all around to, to do different things, and it's very versatile. But just in the format that we're in, it's, I just find it really difficult to justify playing it to a big event. Yeah, I mean, I'll actually be honest. If I was going to Sacramento this weekend, I actually would play Gardevoir, but I would be super concerned about the clock. Um, I think you need to, if you're going to play this deck, you have to learn like how to swoop very fast and honestly just keep your pace of play up. Uh, I just I really like Gardevoir just because I feel like it has a lot of skill expression. Um, there's lots of decisions every turn. There's like lots of board states to work towards. You have collapse as an option, uh, and I think it has a pretty good matchup score. Like it's good in Timuridon. Like I'd actually say it's probably slightly favorable to Charizard. Uh, Lost Box I think is probably fifty fifty. Like if you're a skilled player with the deck, uh, Lugia I'd consider a bad ma- a good matchup. Like I would just really be scared of playing as like Chen Pao pretty much. But yeah, like basically, like yeah. time is the only really thing holding this deck back from I think being the clear best deck in the format. Yeah, it's a combination of time and power. I, I would think those two things kind of hinder it. And like, yeah, like I've I've seen a lot of. I mean, we've both seen a lot of very good players do well with this deck. And and even around me last weekend, I saw a lot of Gardevoirs. I saw a lot of skilled players playing Gardevoir. It just bothers me that the time is such a factor. And obviously, like. You you can play to Sacramento it, like if you were going you said you would play to Sacramento and that would make sense to me because you play the deck a lot you're very comfortable with it you're able to kind of make those decisions that may take other people ten seconds and five seconds and those little things just being comfortable with the deck and this is something I also want to touch on before we hop off here um, but just being comfortable with what you're playing is so important in a Bo three fifty and I think and, and I, you know what I'll hop into it right now but it, real quick like. One of the big mistakes I made personally and I've been making at the beginning of the season so far is just not playing things that I'm particularly comfortable with. So I played Gardevoir, I played Lugia back-to-back regionals, and I just didn't do well at either of them. And I think a lot of that is just due to the fact that there are decks that I, I consider myself to be very good at, like like Garatina or, or Lost Zone Box or Mew or whatever. But just wanting to be different and just kind of going outside your realm of comfort is a good thing a lot of the time. But if you don't have the time to fully master it and fully make those little micro decisions at your highest potential, it comes back to hinder you. And I, and I think I was punished and I learned that lesson very, very quickly this season where if you're on the fence and you, you want to you wanna metagame for what's around you and all that stuff, like that's cool. But you got to make sure that you're 100% confident in what you're doing and that you're able to make those decisions to the highest level. Because what I did this weekend is I over metagamed. I thought, you know what, like, like I said, White Lugia seems like a like a great choice. Like just be colorless, no weaknesses really. Like aside from Raikou, you're trading positively. Like I was over metagaming because I thought I'd see a lot of Lugia. I thought I'd see a lot of uh, like like stuff that that Lugia can beat. So I put in a Luxray and I put in a bunch of other stuff, and it just didn't work out. So I think let that be a lesson to everybody. And I think you kind of have to learn it at your own pace and and at your own time, obviously. But stay comfortable with something and then once you're comfortable with something kind of stick with it if you're on the fence about it just stick with what you know and and, and kind of run with it and i think that was the mistake i made and i think that has a big deal to do with gardevoir as well like where i'm saying you need to kind of make those micro decisions quite fast and i think the good players do well with gardevoir consistently because they can make those decisions fast and effectively yeah agreed uh just a word of advice if you want to try new decks like, i actually usually just try them on a lead cup through challenges uh, I think it's just good practice since you're playing against normally at cups and challenges, like the skill level there is indicative of what you'll play against in the regionals. Uh, and you just like learn more like playing it in a competitive environment than you do like, yeah, like theorying the deck the night before or whatever. So definitely agree with Anil there. Uh, if you have a deck you're super strong with, even if you think it's probably slightly worse than another deck, if you're very good with your original deck, just stick with it and uh, 
hope hope it's your day. Yeah, man, hundred percent. And I think I mean we've been playing the game for a long time now. I think we kind of learned that a lot, and then sometimes like just forget. <laughs> and, and that was a mistake I made early this season. I was just like, you know what? I feel like I have the ability to do this now, and let me try it out. And it just hasn't worked out. So I think sometimes you got to relearn lessons that you learned when you were younger, and that was definitely one of those things. I mean, like, like, look at my Limitless page last year. I swear I have, like, eight or nine Lugia finishes on it. So I just stuck with one deck. I got really good at it, and obviously it paid off for me. Uh, so there's no shame in just one-tricking a deck. A lot of a lot of strong players do it. Uh, obviously, if you have fun playing other decks, play other decks. But uh, you can have success just mastering one deck. Yep. And that's the other thing, too. I think sometimes we over-meta, over-meta game what we expect to see at a regionals. At the end of the day, Zard can be 15%. You're only playing nine people. Like, you may never see a Zard. And, and I think over metagaming into regionals is tough. I think in League Cups and challenges, it definitely matters more what people around you are playing. But into regionals, you could hit anybody, man. Like, my boy hit, like, I forget what he hit. He was, like, something just absolutely stupid, like Wo Chien or something, round one. And and he almost lost. He's like, dude, I don't even know what the hell that was. Because you don't really know what you're going to hit at a regionals. Like, yeah, like especially round one a- and two. Yeah, if something has a 15% meta share, your expected value is actually only 1.35 over 9 yep. rounds. And, like, honestly, like, it's not even that statistically, like, un- improbable that you're going to hit zero. So, uh, yeah. while you could, you could metagame, like, you could predict the metagame perfectly, and you still won't hit the decks you expected to hit. Like, that's just how Pokemon goes sometimes. Yeah, and that, that actually segues really well into what I want to talk about here. Let's talk about uh, Arctur of all picks. And <laughs> this was a, uh, this was interesting. For sure. I, I, I thought about Arctura on the Thursday and I, I messaged a couple group chats and I was like, hey guys, what do you think of this? I was shut down so fast. And I think, I don't know, like 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 I said, I don't think you can expect to hit anything at a regionals, but if you are willing to take the risk, you can get rewarded pretty well. And we saw that on day one with that Arctura of all picks deck with, uh, by Jeremy Wang. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't know actually like before that um, a lot of Canadians were, were testing the deck and in theory, yeah, it's super strong. Like, Duraludon just makes auto-win against Lugia. So you have, like, an auto-win against, like, a 15% deck. Uh, Volpix is actually in a really good spot in the meta. Uh, it completely walls out Chen Pao if they don't play Escape Rope. Um, it completely walls out Gardevoir, and a lot of players have cut the memory skip uh, Ralts. Yep. It completely walls out Charizard, I think, because they have an ability. So just, yeah, lots of decks just get walled out by the Volpix. And then Dura is obviously a confident of the Lugia matchup, so... Uh, it is an RCS deck. It's a little slow, a little clunky, but as I guess, it's one of those decks where like it fits your day and you run well. Uh, you can have a really great finish. Yeah, and I I agree with that. I think it's it's in a good spot as well. But it's one of those things. It's kind of got Mew syndrome, where if it's if it's expected, it's never gonna really do too well. People are just gonna put their memory skips back in, and like even even in Chen Pao, this is obviously very difficult. But you can plan quad cross switchers. In it. if you have them, you have them, man. Like. <laughs> There is ways around it. I just don't think people expected to see it and really, I don't think people really thought about what the best way to approach it was or just didn't have a counter straight up. Uh, I would agree with that. So moving on, let's talk about Lawson. Lawson got three placements in, in top eight and it was actually three different builds. So we had Draymond, one with the Kyogre build, but a little different. He didn't play Raikou and Dragonite. Um, we had Jack got second. He had a pretty like standard Turbo Lawson list. And Terrence Miller played the Turbo... Uh, Charizard, uh, Sableye deck. He even played one of the, the dittos from 151, which I thought was really cool. Um, 
Yeah, like, what do you think about Lost Box, like, uh, like having such a strong showing here in, in Top Cut? And it only had a 12% day two conversion, so it obviously super strong they were able to take three three placements in the top eight. Yeah, and, like, I think this is another one of those indications of people over-metagaming and over-analyzing Japanese events sometimes. I know Lost Box didn't do too great at a, at a couple of those Japanese events that people were looking at, and I think a lot of people wrote it off, and, and a lot of people didn't i don't want to say didn't account for it because i think you always account for lost box but didn't expect to see as much of it as we did see um obviously raymond's list was very unique uh having that zamazenta instead of the turbo build was was really really interesting and, and we we had been able to see it at our local events a little bit where they were testing it out um i never thought too much of it but now that i think about it it actually makes a ton of sense and i think the that zamazenta like when it came out was was supposed to be an auto include in every loss box and it just didn't really pan out the way we thought it would but looking at it now 220 is such a good number and resisting the 30 as well like it just seems like a good card and i and i think oh people over analyzing people over overseeing what happened in japan i don't i don't want to say people didn't account for it but i don't think people made deck choices expecting to see as much loss box in day two as they did um i i personally saw a lot of the loss box on my run as well like it, it did definitely seem to be around and I don't know, man. Like it, that deck never really dies, no matter what. Yeah, I agree. And I think just in the hands of a very skilled pilot, like Lost Souls, is such a great deck. Um, and Raymond's obviously very skilled to deck. He actually made Top Eight at Hartford for similar build, but like no bees back then. Uh, and Zamazenta mm-hmm. is very interesting to me because it's basically like a non-bee Dragonite. Um, so you're doing two twenty, like that's usually like a pretty relevant number. Um, and he still he still plays Forest Seal, still he plays Pidgeot just so he can shuffle Pidgeot back, not leave Lightning in the bench. Uh, and then Kyogre is obviously just, I love Kyogre. Like, it just turns so many games that, like, are unwinnable, like, into a game that you can win. Um, yeah, he, he played a, a deck with a high skill cap, hit some good matchups, and uh, paid off for him. Yeah, I, I love the Kyogre as well. I It has that kind of Gardevoir problem, though. Like, sometimes we're not able to finish games if you're fully reliant on it. That's why I like the approach of Zamazenta. And I like, like, obviously, Turbo's always play Raikus and Dragonites to try and finish games faster as well. It's just tough if you're not a fast Lost Box player to get those games done. And that's where you see those, like, crazy tie rates. And, and this weekend, man, like, the amount of people in time and with, like, a lot of ties on their record was insane. I think somebody was mentioning that it was, like, one of the highest tie rates in, like, modern era history, which yeah, is kind of insane. Actually, we saw, like, uh, I think Pittsburgh or uh, Pittsburgh was a bigger regional than Peoria, but Peoria actually had a clean cut at 35, and I think that is due to how many ties that we did have. Yeah. It seemed way lower than I thought it would be. Like, I thought the cut would be, like, 36, and, and there'd be a couple bubble 35s, but it seemed like it was just clean 35, and I saw some, like, crazy records, bro. There was, like, one guy at, like, 807. There was another guy who had, like, eight ties, and, like, like how do you even do that yeah <laughs> it's insane yeah. <laughs> insane um looking forward okay so let's look forward a little bit so oh, we recap here for what it was the last deck bro the best deck of the tournament oh god all right fine let's do it all right so we gotta mention the last deck in top 80 we have yes yes Grant yes Chen your baby with chen pow pascal our boy on cpow yeah i mean Hey, I said it last week that I thought the meta was fantastic for Chen Pao, and I think we saw that since uh, it had a great conversion in day two, around 10%. And we had a lot of great players spin the deck, like Grant was playing it, obviously. Rahul and his group was playing it. 
I'm sure I'm forgetting some other people, but um, I mean, look, we saw a twenty percent Charizard meta day two, and that's like pretty much an auto win for Chen Pao. We saw actually Gardevoir the second was popular at day two, so those two great matchups for Chen Pao. So um, the deck's also just fun to play, um, and I think going forward to Sacramento, like I don't foresee Charizard going down that much, and Gardevoir should see a similar level of play. So I still think Chen Pao is like in a in a great spot going forward. I I hundred percent agree. And uh, yeah, like it was in a great spot. It obviously had a, had some good meta shares there, and and I mean Grant just went on a run. You just cooked, and you need you need to do that at regionals to to do well. You got to hit your right matchups. I saw him like I at one point that he was sitting across from that Arctur of all picks, and I was like, oh damn, like <laughs> this is uh is looking tough. But he managed to take a game off him. Like if it was CPOW, it feels like it's really versatile. Like obviously you do have one attacker, your main attacker, but you do have ways to kind of go around that. And some Greninja plays can swing games. You can go in with backs. There are ways around it farther than what people think, and I think that's why when people pick up Chen Pao, they're like, this deck kind of sucks because they don't really understand the full potential of what it can be. And I mean, you can you Lucas and Grant can speak to that the best. Yeah, I mean, like, the deck's actually, like, extremely difficult. Like, I don't think a lot of people realize that. Like, if you watch Grant's top eight match, like, the amount of sequencing and, like, resource management you have to do with the deck is just, like, insane. So, um, and you can also set up a lot of checkmate boards. You have to play around Iono. You have to play around your backs getting bossed and knocked out. So, uh, there's a lot going on. So, if you want to play this deck, I definitely practice it. But it's, like, really fun. Like, I promise you, if you play this deck, like, you're going to have a great time doing it. Uh, okay, but yeah, we can move on, Neil. I just had to, to give Chen Pao its rightful shout-out that it deserved. <laughs> no, I understand. I, I would do the same thing if my baby made top eight. Um, okay, so looking forward. Um, obviously, we've we've kind of seen what this meta has to offer now. Um, that was our first like major tournament with 151. Uh, like, where do you see this meta going? Like, what do we think is going to happen here? And given that there's, like we said, like six or seven decks that are just in kind of a similar tier, I think it's personally, I think it's going to kind of be like a teeter totter effect where one deck does well and the counter deck does well and it's just over and over and over. But where do you see this kind of going? I honestly don't think the meta is going to shift a lot. Like, I don't think it's easy to counter this meta. Like, we discussed before, like, all the decks are similar in, in meta share. Uh, I think we might see Mew go up and play, just because it's a very loyal base. And now that there's a, a more solved build out there, I think more people pick it up. But I do think one card that we'll see more play this weekend is definitely the Spiritomb. Uh, so I don't know if Mew's going to have the same showing it this time. But other than that, like I don't really see any decks seeing more or less play. Like I think people who like their deck are just going to stick with it. Like, I'm just like scrolling through day two, and it's like I see like almost every single Arcanine pair like represented like very well. So. Uh, maybe Lugia's numbers will go down a bit after its first showing, but I think the rest of the decks are going to stay somewhat around the same. Yeah, and like 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 you said, Spirit Team is going to go up, and I think you know surprisingly, and especially given our episode last week and how much we this was a focal point for us, I think Mew EX will go down, and and a lot of people were playing Mew, and I talked to a lot of people last weekend. I don't know why, but Mew was a constant discussion. And most people were like, this card is not as good as I thought it was. And I think with with how much Tina's on the decline as well, your applications for it kind of go down. And, and I can see a lot of people kind of taking that leap and cutting it from their list as well. Yeah, uh, I agree. Actually, we didn't mention that, but yeah, Tina like, kind of flopped. Like, it, there's obviously some in day two. Um, but it went from like the most played deck in Pittsburgh, I think, to really falling off. Like, it wasn't even on the day one graphic. It was the eighth most played deck day two. 
Uh, the only thing Tina fell off is there was a lot of Charizard, which is a great matchup for for Tina. Yeah, and like, and I'm a bit of a Tina bot myself. I love this just idea of Tina, and and I can tell you, I think the reason why it fell off, and and I don't know what the meta share was. I don't remember. But I don't remember it having a huge meta share day one. And I think most of that was just from fears of Mew EX. And, and from testing matchups against Mew EX, when they bring out a Mew and just copy your lost impact, if you don't play Snorlax, you are in trouble. And just that one card and, and how hyped it was and how popular of an include it was, how splashable it was, there's so many reasons for that. I think that's why Tina kind of flopped. I know the highest... Uh, placing for Tina the last weekend was 30th and that's not a it's not a great number it's not super promising either going forward but it is something I'm planning on putting a lot of time into myself I, I do think that like you said like Zard's a good matchup like the the potential is kind of it's uncapped a little bit depending on what you hit in the day but I think Mew EX alone was enough to scare most people off Tina and, and maybe now with that dropping a little bit you might see bigger numbers but I don't see it making a huge splash to be honest with you yeah, I mean, like, I wouldn't be surprised if it saw more play, like, and I wouldn't be surprised if it, like, made top 8 next weekend, but, like, yeah, I can definitely see why it was scared off. I do think Mew was the main reason, uh, but I think it's still well-positioned in the meta. Like, if you like playing Giratina, like, I don't see why you shouldn't play it. Um, yeah, and, well, the last thing as well, and I don't think this helps Tina at all, but I, I remember Brent Tonneson played a Mew EX in his Guardi list, and I was reading his tweets, he, he posted out his list or whatever, and he said it was actually quite useful. So if Guardi players also start picking up Mew EX, it's lights out, I think. I mean, I don't think Mew is going to copy Lost Impact against Tina. I think I think I read his tweet too. I think he was copying like Mew and Shirt, to be honest. But I would be kind of surprised if my Gardevoir opponent whipped out a Mew EX on me. Loki, that's just as scary, though. <laughs> Copying <Yeah>. Water Shuriken <laughs> is kind of terrifying. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the one thing I like about Mew EX if you play it in the regional. Like, if you play it at, like, League Cup, like, everyone's going to know you play it after, like, round one. Like, a, a regional, no one's going to know you're playing this card. Like, let's say you're playing a really long game one. All of a sudden, you just drop Mew EX. Or, like, you play game two, and you just show it to them game one. Like, they're not playing around this. And you just drop it. You steal a game. And sometimes a match. So... Um, yeah, I could see I could see it being good. I actually think it's much stronger in a regional format than it is in a local format. Agreed. 100% agreed. Going forward, I, I think what I see is, like like I said a little bit, like I think it's going to be a bit of a teeter-totter format. Maybe less so magnified as it was before, but maybe you're seeing more tombs, less muse, than you're seeing more drapions, whatever. Whatever the teeter-totter effect is amongst those seven decks, I think that's kind of what you're going to see. I think Arctur of Volpix is going to be part of that equation in some sort of capacity. Uh, as Lugia goes up, Arctur of Volpix goes up. That's if it kind of catches steam here, which I think it might a little bit. People do love Arceus, and I mean, who doesn't love an auto win into Lugia? So I think there are definitely some some changes that are going to be made. Maybe the single strike Lugia start putting Urshifu back in. There's there's a lot of talk about Rapid Strike as well, and 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 I do think Rapid Strike is actually in a kind of decent spot but like we said in our first episode there it, you kind of lose to yourself which which feels super bad but other than that the, the deck actually feels like it's in a decent spot right now i don't mind it but yeah going forward we'll, we'll see what happens man I, I i mean my guess is just as good as yours is just as good as the next guy um sacramento is going to be a coin flip just like peoria was and i think Come this come this time next week, we're gonna have a lot to talk about, a lot to unpack, and, and then we're looking to Toronto, our hometown regionals. Yeah, I'm excited for Toronto. It's always my my favorite regional of the year, so that'll be great. Yeah, man, we gotta we gotta 
We have Canadians winning Peoria and Pittsburgh. We got to win a home regional here, man. Yeah, we haven't actually won Toronto regionals since 2016. So I know <laughs> one of us changes that. Yeah, man, we gotta we gotta get on our horse there. But yeah, we'll I we'll revisit this next week. I have a lot of things I want to talk about in terms of the whole LAIC debacle, but that can wait for a week while I kind of process my thoughts. To be honest, like there's just got to be a better way to do this. I mean, I don't think there's that much more to talk about, man. <laughs> it just it sucks right now. The only people who can fix it is Pokemon. Um, but yeah, we can we can if we want further discuss like some some ideas of how that could play out in the future. I love the idea of region lock nationals, but if I uncork that that bottle right now, I'm going to be ranting for hours. So we're not going to do that. <laughs> I would love those too, uh, as long as you keep the internationals, but have maybe a separate event. I think those would be super cool. But yeah, we can talk about that in the future. Absolutely sick. But yes, um, uh, as we said last week, thank you so much to everybody who, who hopped into the podcast. We're at 48 minutes now, so kind of similar as last week. If you survived to this point, we respect you. We love you. Thank you for being here. Um, we always are looking for feedback. For some reason, we have not been approved for Apple Podcasts yet, so we're working on that. Um, eventually, I'm going to buy a webcam so we can put this on YouTube as well. So that's all going to happen within the next week, hopefully. We appreciate it. Appreciate everybody coming back. Uh, is there anything else you want to add there, Karen? No, just uh, having a lot of fun with this podcast. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And we can't wait to keep making episodes. Yes, sir. Sweet. We will see everybody next week. If anyone's going to Sacramento, best of luck. We will check back in on Wednesday. And thank you so much for being here. We'll see you next week. Peace, guys.